0: you also start to see alcohol get smuggled in from Cuba. So it's kind of one of the things that really sets Florida apart is all this smuggling.
1: I'm Leah Colon, and this is The Zest, citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. Today, we're turning back the clock by a century to 1920s Florida. The Roaring Twenties meant jazz music, architectural innovation, and the outlawing of alcohol. At least, that was the official stance. Here at The Zest, we're all about food and drinks in Florida. And lately, we've been talking a lot about drinks. In this season alone, we brought you interviews with the folks behind Distillery 98 in the Panhandle, Bassett Brewing in Tampa, and Duke and Dame Whiskey in South Florida. We explored food and wine pairings for hot weather with Will Howard, who's the sommelier at Rococo Steak in St. Petersburg, and Chef BT Wynn of Restaurant BT in Tampa gave us a lesson in cooking with booze. But today, we are switching gears all together to talk about a time when alcohol was forbidden in Florida. A new exhibition at the Tampa Bay History Center explores what our state was like a century ago, from music and fashion to politics and social movements, including the banning of alcohol. It's called Decade of Change, Florida in the 1920s, and it's on view from November 4th to July 14th. I spoke with the exhibition's curator, Brad Massey, about prohibition in Florida.
0: Florida in the 1920s, it's really the first modern boom decade. So Florida had a tiny population from the 1800s into the 1900s. It's not until the 1920s where we start to see more and more people move in. And where they move are to places that nobody really lived at before. So, for example, Dade County down in Miami, you have a population boom. I mean, there's a housing boom. In Tampa, you started to have a population boom a little bit earlier because of the cigar industry. But the 20s, it really continues. And then you have the development of Davis Islands and some of these other places. So what you see in Florida is the creation of new larger population centers in places where you didn't see a lot of people before. And so whereas Florida had been an agrarian place of agriculture and cotton and some of these other things earlier, now it starts to become a much more metropolitan place in the 1920s.
1: And is that what causes change in so many of these different categories from politics to fashion? Is it just the fact that so many more people are here and we're like mixing it up? Yeah, it's
0: part of it. I mean, you have a lot of, as people that live in Florida know, you have a lot of displaced New Yorkers. You have a lot of displaced people from Ohio. I'm one so, of them. Yeah, so that's what we see, right? And we see cultural trends come down from those areas. One thing we talk about in the exhibit is some music that was done locally and some local, like there was a song called Tampa Steps Out, which was about the city's development and really celebrating into the 1920s. So we see homegrown cultural products, but yeah, we also see these new residents import these new ideas down from New York City, down from Chicago and these other places. So yeah, this new environment where you have a lot of new residents from different places definitely affects the culture and the vibe here in Florida.
1: Wow. Okay, before we jump into prohibition, I just think the whole era of the 1920s is so fascinating because I'm picturing like the Harlem Renaissance, the Roaring Twenties, flappers, zoot suits. Was it as, as rosy of a time as it seems in hindsight?
0: Yeah, no. I mean, in (laughs) short, it is not as rosy of a time. And that was actually a difficult part of developing this exhibit. We wanted to talk about some of the fun things like the Charleston and the Foxtrot. And in our exhibit, we're going to have a dance floor with footsteps and you can play music from the 20s and try to do the dance. But then we also didn't want to just celebrate the decade because it's a very dark decade, especially when it comes to politics and racial violence. So here in Florida, this is the era of lynching. The community of Rosewood is going to be burned down to the ground. There's going to be a lot of racial violence around a 1920 election in Okoe. All of these things are happening. And so that's another thing that we talk about in this exhibit is we talk about the anti-Catholicism of the governor. We talk about Jim Crow and we talk about some of these things that really remind us that, yeah, even though people are dancing and it's glamorized, this is a dark time, especially if you're a black resident in Okoye trying to exercise your right to vote if you have a home in Rosewood and your home got burned to the ground. So those are some of the things that we talk about as well, because we wanted to give a really balanced take on what the 1920s was like.
1: Okay, that's fair. I probably would not have been having the time of my life in the 1920s in Florida. So that's the backdrop. And a big part of the exhibition is prohibition. For people who may not know, what was prohibition and how did it come about? Prohibition,
0: of course, is the outlawing of alcohol. And when people think about Prohibition, they always think about 1920 because that's the year that it goes into effect. But the process in Florida was actually much more convoluted. What we had here in Florida is counties, started county by county. So, for example, in 1904, Leon County, which is where Tallahassee is, it's going to vote itself dry. But not just Leon, there's 26 other counties that vote themselves dry. In 1915, there's a law called the Davis Package Law, which basically outlaws saloons. You couldn't consume alcohol in the place it was purchased once the Davis Package Law was passed. So by the time National Prohibition gets here, there's actually only a handful of counties that are still legally selling alcohol. That's Hillsborough County, of course here in Tampa, Gade County, and a couple of the, the more metropolitan areas. When it came to The rural part of Florida, most of it was already dry.
1: Why is that? Because today we hear about the free state of Florida where sort of anything goes. And why did so many counties decide to be dry?
0: There was a push that starts in the 1800s, the late 1800s in particular after the Civil War. And this push is led by a couple, a few different groups. But two of the big ones are the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Anti-Saloon League. And what both of these organizations argue is that alcohol is bad for the national character. It's bad for morals. It's bad for family values. And so the Women's Christians Temperance Union went out there and they basically just lobbied against the sale and manufacture of alcohol. Sometimes they got violent. There was a woman named Carrie Nation that was known to go into saloons with an axe and she would hack at bottles and she would destroy them. She became known as the bulldog at Jesus's feet, right? So she's a big believer in this. That's amazing. And yeah, the anti-saloon league was interesting, too, because what they argued is that it's not just alcohol, but it's saloon culture. Because if you go to a saloon, what do you see? You see gambling. You see prostitution. You see all these other things. So that's why they came up with their title, which, is of course, is the anti-saloon league. They wanted to get rid of this place of vice. Those two organizations and others, in particular, white Protestant organizations, some of which are very unhappy with large immigrant communities that are consuming and creating alcohol, like German communities, like Italian communities and Cuban communities here in Tampa. So yeah, it was kind of a convoluted thing, but all these forces are coming together long before 1920 and long before nationwide prohibition.
1: Will you say again the names of the organizations? Because they sound like the biggest wet blanket. <laughs> like you could not have a less fun title for your organization. <laughs> yeah, the the two big
0: ones were the Women's Christians Temperance Union, which, you know, it's right there in the title. They, they want you to be temperate. And the Anti-Saloon League, which is really going after these places that they see as places of vice, right?
1: So when prohibition becomes the national law of the land, what year was that and how did it look in Florida at that point?
0: Prohibition becomes the law of the United States in 1920. Florida actually went dry about a year before that because they're finally able to pass a statewide law. And so what you see is before New York is dry and some of these other places, there's raids in Florida of of certain locations of coffee shops. A lot of these old saloons, they kind of rebranded themselves as coffee shops. And, of course, they sold coffee, but they still they sold liquor as well. What we see is in Florida, prohibition starts a little early, and it starts to get enforced a little earlier, but that enforcement is going to be really spotty.
1: How did it compare to other
0: states? When it came to other states, what set Florida apart was it continued to be incredibly wet. It was considered a leaky state. And (laughs) part of that was because of Florida's proximity to Cuba and the Bahamas. And what we see in Florida, because you have so much coastline, a lot of it that's unpopulated. So in 1920, I mean, the population between Dade County and up towards what's Cape Canaveral nowadays, nobody really lived there. I mean, you're talking tens of thousands of people that are scattered over a hundred mile stretch or more. And so what the bootleggers figure out really early is, you know, what we can do alcohol's still legal in the Bahamas. Right. Let's go to the Bahamas and let's shoot over to the east coast of Florida. So Florida is different than other states. I mean, it's not the only state that experienced this, but it had so much coastline and so much proximity to the Bahamas that you see alcohol start to get smuggled over. You also start to see alcohol get smuggled in from Cuba. So it's one of the things that really sets Florida apart is all the smuggling.
1: So what was the alcohol? You said it was brewed somewhere. Are we talking rum
0: yeah there's a lot of rum there's a lot of whiskey there's a historian that did a study and i think before u.s prohibition there's about 50,000 gallons of liquor that were imported to the bahamas right once prohibition starts in the united states there's over a million gallons and what's happening is it's legitimate right distillers can bring it to the bahamas they can sell it and then the smugglers have to bring it over that's what we see in florida during this time
1: about the smuggling. How did they get the alcohol past? I don't know if there were checkpoints. And then how did they advertise that it was available to people? How do you know that this coffee shop has rum and not just coffee?
0: It's a very elaborate process, right? It's not just McCoy. You have these other people that are smuggling, and basically what they'll do is they'll set up around the Bahamas, Cuba, and then outside the three-mile nautical line, right, because they got to get into international water. McCoy is credited with creating this, but what they would do is they would take bottles of liquor, usually five or six of them, put them in a canvas sack, and then tie it tight, like the type of sack that a ham comes in. And so those were called hams. A lot of times these were engineered to float. So they could float if if they had to toss them overboard. If the Coast Guard shows up, they would also create false bottoms in their smuggling vessels so they could store these hams down low. Sometimes they would attach submersible things to the bottom of the boat to smuggle this over. So there's a lot of different ways they would do it. And then what happened a lot of time is when they landed, let's say they land in Titusville or someplace where nobody lives, There would be a truck and there'd be produce or something. There'd be oranges and then they would hide the hams under the oranges and then they would send it to wherever it was going to be sold. A lot of times to the big cities, right, see a lot of liquor make its way down to Miami, see a lot of liquor make its way to Tampa. And yeah, from there, it would just spread out throughout the state. At first, it was a very Swiss cheese-like enforcement system. There wasn't a lot of money for Prohibition at the beginning. Eventually, there will be a lot of money that's put into Prohibition. The border stays open for a long time until the U.S. Coast Guard and other federal agencies really get involved in enforcing Prohibition. In 1928, the Coast Guard's actually going to send 31 boats down the South Florida. And what they're going to do is they're going to try to clamp down on this illegal smuggling down in Florida. And they do it not entirely successfully, but much more successfully than they did in the early years of Prohibition. So that's the short of how smuggling worked when it came to bringing booze into Florida from places like Bimini, West End, other places in the Bahamas, and then, of course, Cuba as well.
1: Were there many speakeasies? Like, speakeasies are big today. I went to one in Ybor City, it looks like a bakery, but then you say the password and they open the door and you're in a, basically a restaurant, which is silly. But did that kind of thing really happen?
0: It did happen. It wasn't always as secretive as you would think. So for example, there's a great book called From Saloons to Steakhouses. It's written by a librarian at USF,
1: Andy Hughes. Yeah, we are. he's a friend of the pod. (laughs) Okay, good. Yeah, Andy's great.
0: And he talks about in his book how He says there's only nine soda fountains in Tampa before Prohibition. And then after Prohibition, all of a sudden there's 40. So a soda fountain place is a good example. If it's a type of place that's selling liquor, you can sneak a drink. There's other places, like a lot of these places in Ybor City that used to be small saloons, they become coffee houses. They rebrand themselves. And so in 1919, there's one that gets raided in Ybor City, and they find 10,000 gallons of liquor there. There was these different types of places, right? And then there was more upscale places. So, for example, and probably most famously is there was this place called the Key Club, which was a couple blocks away from the Tampa Police Department. And this place becomes infamous because it's a high-end speakeasy where you had to have a key to get in. That's why they call it the Key Club. Then when you got up there, you had to know a password or know somebody and get in. And this place was patronized by the most powerful people in Tampa, including then-Tampa Mayor Perry Wall. And it's a good example of a high-end speakeasy. And then I'll also say this, the countryside is certainly not dry. There's moonshine stills like in the northern parts of Hillsborough. Some of that moonshine makes its way into the city. Some of it is going to be dispersed throughout the rural parts of the state. So, so yeah, there, there's speakeasies, but there's also less formal places where you can get alcohol during Prohibition.
1: How does it end? How does Prohibition end in either the U.S. or Florida? So
0: it ends... Slowly and painfully, at least in the minds of the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the (laughs) anti-saloon.
1: We don't like them.
0: (laughs) It ends when basically the powers that be turn against prohibition. And so I think this is really important to note. A lot of the victims of prohibition were people without means, right? Lower class people. White farmers living out that are distilling moonshine, black residents in the city, in Ybor City, Cubans that are working in the cigar factories, they a lot of times are the victims of prohibitions enforcement, right? They get arrested. They get thrown in jail. There was a police officer in Tampa known as Pearl McAden who policed the black community with impunity, right? I mean, it was just he was notorious, So what happens then is as it's confined to that, Prohibition grinds on. But then when it comes to places like the Key Club, when it gets revealed as being a problem by certain people, even though the mayor is going there, all of a sudden there's a lot of pushback. So the Key Club, for example, there's a judge called Leo Stahlknocker, and he is so determined to close this place down, he personally leads an investigation. He will take a film and he's going to release this film with people coming in and out of it, including the mayor. He gives it a really interesting title too. He calls the film that he makes wages of sin.
1: Oh, and subtle.
0: Very <laughs> subtle. But then he gets pushed back. The mayor basically says there's a problem with the 14th Amendment. It gets in the way of our rights and blah, blah, blah. When he tries to show the film, the fire chief makes sure he can't show it where he wants to show it. Stallnocker is going to lose support in the local newspapers, and then he's going to be out of a job the following year. By 1929, he creates a new publication called Tampa Life, which is devoted to anti-corruption and prohibition and some other things. But He finds no more support. So I think what we see with Prohibition is when we see powerful people start to push against it and we see its inability to be enforced. That's when we see Prohibition slowly start to come to an end. And then by 1933, Prohibition
1: is over in the United States. Was the mafia involved at all? You always hear these tales of these gangsters, especially in Tampa's Ybor City neighborhood.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's certainly organized crime. I wouldn't call it the mafia. There's a couple people that are really involved, people like Charlie Wall, who's locally really important in the narcotics trade. And narcotics is really big in Tampa during the era of Prohibition. This is Actually, the city has probably more narcotics traffic per capita than any other city probably in the country. I mean, that's how important it is for bringing narcotics in. And then there was a man by the name of Zarate, who was involved in narcotics too. And so, yeah, you see these underworld figures that are involved in smuggling. They're involved in narcotics and involved in things like Bolita here in Tampa, which was an illegal lottery. So, yeah, you see it down here, but not how it's portrayed in the media. It's not like a Five Families type of thing. It's a different type of underworld that we have here. We'll have something similar to the Five Families things when Tropicante comes and he's involved in the underworld in Tampa. But in the 1920s, it's a little bit different here. There is an underworld, but it's a little more spotty. But it is tied to these rum runners and to these coffee shops and all these other things.
1: This is so fascinating. So first of all, how did you research this exhibition? And what was the biggest surprise for you? Yeah, the way the exhibitions
0: come together is we think about the topics that we want to talk about, and then we look at the objects that we can use to tell those stories. So we have a jug from the White Rose Saloon, which was closed in 1915 when the Davis Package Law got passed. So that's a fun piece to tell the story on the way up to Prohibition. The Klan is really big in the 1920s, and the KKK is a big supporter of Prohibition. They actually beat a couple of saloon owners during Prohibition. A guy by the name of Leo Isaac in particular gets beat by Klan members. And so we have some objects from the Klan from the 1920s, and we're like, well, that's an important story, and it also will allow us to tell a non-Prohibition story too. So what we do is we look for the objects, and then we think about the stories that we want to tell. And then I spend a lot of time reading. I, I mentioned Andy Hughes's book. It's a great book, especially when it comes to the 1920s. He has a, a chapter in that book called The Noble Disaster. Then I read other books, and I, I look at what other institutions have done. And so it's a balance of telling stories that people are familiar with, but then bringing in new stories as well. And then the most important thing for us is to use objects to tell those stories.
1: What a fascinating decade. Do you think there are lessons for us 100 years later? One of the lessons
0: of Prohibition is it's difficult to police and control what people consume and what they do. There's a great book by a a historian called Lisa McGurr called The War on Alcohol. And she talks about, well, what Prohibition does is it creates a huge police state. Because you need this really powerful federal government to try to control people's behavior and what they're going to consume. And we see that later. And today with the war on drugs, right, there's always this back and forth about, well, we can't let people do whatever they want to do. But then where do we draw the line? And Prohibition is one of those early experiments where we'd say, well, let's try to control what people consume. Let's try to police their morality a little bit. And it ultimately fails, right? But it's something that we still continually do when it comes to alcohol, when it comes to drugs, when it comes to things like prostitution and gambling, there's always this give and take in society. And so, I think prohibition really shines a light on that both the difficulties of trying to do that, but also understanding the motives.
1: What do you think the members of the Anti-Saloon League would say if they walked down the streets of Ybor City today?
0: Yeah, they'd be they'd be appalled, right? I think they would see it as a failing, that this attempt to try to moderate people's behavior failed, but it was a noble experiment. But I think they would be disappointed. And I think the Women's Christian Temperance Union, it's hard to get in the minds of people from the past, but they would probably be disappointed that the attempt to police morality has gone away as much as it has. So that's my guess, but it's difficult to decipher what people from a different time and place would think.
1: This is so interesting to me. Is there anything else you want to highlight from the exhibition?
0: What I would also want people to know is that it's more than just prohibition. Like We tell these stories, but we want to give you a more full picture of what conditions were like in the 1920s for all of the Bay Area's residents.
1: Very cool. And I know you even get into sports and all kinds of good stuff.
0: Yeah, definitely. We're going to do we do sports. We do 1920s architecture, do something on fashion and dance. We have some swimsuits from the 1920s on display. So, yeah, we have a lot of fun, different stuff that'll be in the show.
1: Well, thank you so much, Brad. This is absolutely fascinating. And thanks for all your research. I love it when people come with all kinds of information and history. It's right up our alley.
0: Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Brad Massey curated the exhibition Decade of Change, Florida in the 1920s. It's on view at the Tampa Bay History Center from November 4th to July 14th. You'll find a link to more information on our website, thezestpodcast.com. And meet us back here next week to learn the basics of foraging food. Our guest is Roger L. Hammer. He's the author of Foraging Florida and a survivalist instructor for the Discovery Channel series Naked and Afraid. I'm Dalia Colon. I produce The Zest with Andrew Lucas. Our social media and web guru is Alexandria Ebron. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media, copyright 2023, part of the NPR Network.